are in Luke chapter 2 this morning, and uh, this is the passage, this is the Christmas story. If you've got a Bible, open it up, it'll be very familiar to many of you. Um, I won't read out the whole thing because uh, Helen Savage, the voice of Helen Savage, did a great job reading this story, but I want to just point out some details. You know, we're so used to this story, we're so used to hearing it every Christmas time that I think there are a few things in this narrative that we often gloss over that are actually quite important for understanding what's actually going on here. You notice in Luke chapter 2, as Luke tells the story of the birth of Jesus, that he makes a point of grounding this whole story in real historical events. Luke wants us to know that we're not reading mythology, we're not reading philosophy, we're reading history. This actually happened, and so he mentions real place names. He mentions Nazareth, he mentions Bethlehem. Uh, He talks about a real census that was happening at the time. He talks about Joseph's ancestry, so that we know this is a real guy. He really lived, not a mythological character. This is a real bloke. And he mentions, most importantly, the names of some world leaders at the time, some world politicians. He mentions this guy Quirinius, in verse 2, who was the governor of Syria at the time. And Syria was the province that included Bethlehem. That's why he's important. Um, Judea was under the rulership of Quirinius, who was the governor of Syria. And he also mentions the big cheese in verse 1, Caesar Augustus, which is very helpful uh, for scholars in uh, dating Luke and and making sure that Luke is a true historian. He mentions this guy, Caesar Augustus, who we know was the emperor of Rome at the time and who there is a lot of historical background information uh, to verify his rule. Uh, He was really the most prominent the most significant, the most illustrious emperor that Rome really ever had. Uh, He was the great-grandnephew of Julius Caesar, uh, probably the most well-known name. But uh, Augustus came in, and he ruled the Roman Empire all by himself. This was the first time that there was one emperor over the whole empire, which really shifted Rome from being a republic to an empire. He ruled from 27 BC right through to 14 AD. So he was the guy that was in charge of much of the known world when Jesus was born. Augustus, when he became emperor, he basically set about a huge program of reform. Almost every single part of the Roman Empire came under uh, his watchful eye, and he set about this program of overhauling it, changing it, making it, in his eyes at least, better. So he reformed the whole taxation system of Rome, and he brought a lot more land under the direct taxation of the empire. Uh, That's one of the reasons they had the census. Uh, Today we have a census, we don't think much of it, it's just for counting people. Back then, it was specifically linked to taxation. You count people so you can tax them. And this increases the net revenue of the government and gives them more money to do whatever they want. So a lot of farmers, particularly some of these peasant farmers in Galilee, uh, were heavily, heavily, heavily taxed by Rome to the point they had to sell off their land uh, to others. So he undertakes this whole program of taxation reform. He, he overhauls the whole system of Roman civil government. He reforms the Senate. He reforms the consulate. He changes the whole way that Rome exercises its power. Uh, Augustus loved to build buildings. He built all kinds of public buildings, uh, Roman baths, uh, temples to all kinds of different gods to keep all kinds of different people happy. Uh, government buildings. He was just into splashing his wealth around, making these huge structures so that people knew that he was uh, in charge. He created a fire service in Rome. 
He created a police force in Rome. He spent massive amounts of money on roading. On his deathbed, Augustus said, I found Rome made of bricks. I leave it to you made of marble. Uh, this was the nature of his legacy. He reformed the whole uh, system of travel through the Roman Empire. He even created the very first courier system through Rome. See, there's little courier guys going around dropping packages off. And of course, the main reason that he improved the roading system was so the military could travel very easily and respond to trouble wherever it was. Uh, he had significant military victories during his time, and he conquered the countries known as modern-day Spain, Portugal, Switzerland, Bavaria, Austria, Slovenia, Albania, Croatia, Hungary, and Serbia. All of them in his lifetime. He pushed out the borders of the Roman Empire far beyond what they'd been. Uh, he called himself victorious commander so everyone would know that he was in charge, and he set about the task of fulfilling Rome's goal of taking over and conquering the known world. That was who Augustus was. He was a shrewd politician. He was a decisive ruler. He was a military victor. And because of his exploits, because of these incredible things that he accomplished, it was believed that the status he rose to was more than just a mere mortal. It was believed that nobody could do what Caesar Augustus did without somehow being more than a man. Somehow he must attain to the level of a god. And even though it wasn't until after his death that he was officially declared to be divine, during his lifetime he was venerated in the same way as Roman and Greek gods. And it was believed the homage due Augustus was the same homage that you would give a god because of his incredible benefaction to the Roman Empire, these good and precious gifts that he had given to his loyal subjects, he was in the status of a god. And during uh, his lifetime, this Roman imperial cult sprung up called the Divus Augustus. This was the official state religion of Rome right through until 381 AD when Christianity became the state religion of Rome. The Divus Augustus. It's the imperial cult of emperor worship where you treat the emperor as a god and you go to shrines and pay homage to him. This is what gave the early church so much trouble uh, in much of the mid-first century because this is precisely what they objected to doing, bowing down and worshipping the emperor. Some of the names that Caesar was given might sound familiar to those of you that have read the New Testament. These are actual names. They've survived in inscriptions and so on. High priest, son of God or son of a god, lord, kurios, lord, Saviour or liberator of his people and the bearer of good news. These were all actual names that were given to Augustus in the first century. These were royal titles. These were imperial ranks given to the emperor. Listen to this inscription. One of the most famous inscriptions concerning Caesar Augustus, uh, written by one of his own historians, so slightly biased, but see what you think. Written in 9 BC, about five years before Jesus was born. Because providence has ordered our life in a divine way, and since the emperor, through his epiphany, has exceeded the hopes of former good news, that word good news is euangelion, it's the same word translated in the New Testament, gospel, so the hopes of former gospel, surpassing not only the benefactors who came before him, but also leaving no hope that anyone in the future will surpass him. And since the birthday of the God, referring to Augustus, was for the world the beginning of his good news, may it therefore be decreed that, and on it goes. Now, with that ringing in your ears, have a look again at these words that this angel says to a bunch of shepherds one night in some hills outside of Bethlehem in this far-flung province of the Roman Empire. 
I think this stuff about Augustus, this imperial cult that had grown up around him, is the backdrop against which Luke 2 is meant to be read. When you come back to the words of the angel, he says this in verse 10, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. It's the same word, gospel, of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So you and I hear those words, Savior and Lord and the bearer of good news or the gospel. And to us, it sounds like Christmas cards. It sounds like Advent calendars. It sounds like warm, fuzzy greetings that we give to each other and write on Christmas cards at Christmas time. But that's not what these shepherds heard. That's not what these angels said that night. What these shepherds heard were dangerous words. What these shepherds heard were treasonous words. Because there was one guy living in the Mediterranean at the time who was the Lord and who was the son of a God, and who was a saviour, and who was believed to be the bearer of good news. And his name was Caesar Augustus, and he was sitting in his palace in Rome a long way away. And you didn't say this kind of stuff unless you were asking for trouble. This was sedition. This was treason. This was a conspiracy. And this was the message of a kingdom that had come, that set itself up against the empire of the day. See, a lot of the time, you and I, we think of the Christmas story just as this tale of private spirituality. It's a nice story. It warms our hearts at Christmas time. Uh, we, we pray the prayers. We read the Bible story. But ultimately, we think of it as a story of personal piety, a story of private faith, something that is just to, to warm our hearts, and it's really between us and God, and it doesn't have too much to say to the real problems in the real world that we face every day. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote a lot of good stuff, but one thing I think he got wrong was a line in the Christmas carol he wrote, Away in a Manger. In the very last verse he says, Bless all the dear children in thy tender care, and take us to heaven to live with thee there. Now you know what he was trying to say, but that's not the point of the Christmas story. We think it often is that Jesus came down to earth basically to get us to heaven. That he came down to earth to give us this kind of escape hatch, really, from the world. To get us out of the world. So that he could die and we could go to heaven when we die. To be with him. But what these shepherds heard on this night outside Bethlehem is a kingdom of heaven that had come crashing down to earth. They didn't hear of a plan to come and rescue them from the world and take them out of all the bad things that were happening. They heard of a kingdom that was now taking shape right here in the midst of this political circle that was going on. They heard of a God who had come to address the world's problems from within the world, who had come to deal with the world's ills from right in the middle of it. This isn't just a story about angels. It's a story about emperors. This is a story about politicians. It's a story about world powers. It's a story of a Jesus who has been born in the middle of all that and has come to rescue us in the middle of all that. Because Luke is telling us that if there is another one who is setting himself up as Lord, who is setting himself up as Savior, then here is a baby that is about to be born or has been born in Bethlehem who is the world's true Savior, who is the true Lord of all. And that means if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And that's a dangerous thing to say. Right from the very beginning, Luke's setting his narrative of Jesus' life on this collision course with the empire. He's saying, if you think 
the birth of the empire was the beginning of good news for the world. Here, here, here is another alternative that I'm presenting to you. It is the birth, the arrival of this baby tonight who marks the beginning of the true gospel, the true good news for all people, not the birth of that emperor over there. Right from the very beginning, Luke puts Jesus' kingdom on a collision course with Caesar's empire. And it's a collision course that takes shape over the course of his whole gospel and ends up with Jesus hanging on a Roman cross when finally that conflict reaches its pinnacle. You see, the, the, the message of Christmas is a message that is designed to bump up against the empires and the kingdoms of the world. Jesus didn't come to earth simply to leave the powers of the world, the kingdoms and the empires that existed in his day alone and let them carry on as they'd always carried on doing the thing they'd already, always done. He came to challenge them. He came to provide an alternative. And I would suggest that maybe our Christmas message has lost a bit of its sharp edge. It's lost the ability to bump up against the empires and the kingdoms of our day. Maybe those empires and kingdoms aren't a world system of government, but think of the empire of consumerism that challenges us with the reality that the path to personal peace and happiness is the accumulation of wealth and material possessions. Or the empire of individualism that tells us it's my interests, it's your interests, it's our needs that take precedence and are paramount. The kingdom of materialism, the empire of greed, these are the empires of our day. These are the world systems of government that we now contend with. These ideologies that suck us in, rather than accommodating ourselves to them, or rather than simply ignoring them, the Christmas story should be something that is lived out as an alternative kingdom, as an alternative reality to these others that present themselves to us. Let me show you how this works. Probably the most controversial words that uh, the, this angel spoke to the shepherds that night come in verse 14. Uh, and it's the climax of this particular piece because the one angel is then joined by a whole crew of angels, all singing together, praising God and saying in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That word peace is so important because it is so tied to the reign of Augustus. Augustus was obsessed with peace. He was obsessed with this idea of creating peace at a golden age of stability and security and prosperity for the whole Roman Empire. So much so that it was during his reign that this phrase was coined, the Pax Romana. It's Latin for the peace of Rome. And it's true that Augustus managed to so effectively conquer so many nations that for about 300 years there was no major international war, no massive tumultuous civil war. Of course there were skirmishes, including the Jewish war, uh, leading up to the destruction of the Jewish temple. But Caesar in general effectively pacified his emperor and reigned in a period of relative peace and stability. This is what he called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This was something he obsessed over, that he wanted to be his legacy to leave this peace for generations and generations to come. But there was a dark side to this peace because if you were a Roman citizen, it felt a lot like peace. You had free passage through the Roman Empire. You had the protection of the Roman legions at your beck and call, really, if you got into trouble at least. Uh, you, you, your empire, your team was winning. The borders were extending. And the glory of Rome was shining with increasing brightness. But for those on the other side of this peace, it didn't really feel much like peace at all. If you were a client kingdom of Rome, if you were a Roman 
uh, people that, was, that were conquered, if you had Roman troops marching through your land, if you were a peasant farmer in Galilee being taxed up to your eyeballs and unable to hold on to your land, it didn't feel a lot like peace to you. This was peace that came at the end of a sword. This was peace that came through bloodshed. This was peace that came through violence and coercion and the might of military Rome. Let me read you one quote by a Roman historian who bucks the trend and calls it like it is, Tacitus, a little bit further along in history, but he looks back on the Roman Empire and says, the Romans call it empire. It is, in fact, murder and rape and profit. They make a desolation and they call it peace. That was the true nature of the Pax Romana. It was peace through coercion. It was peace through brute force and the boot of Rome. And this phrase that the angels sing this night to these shepherds, particularly this line where they say, on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's an incredible statement because it could so easily have been said of Augustus. Could so easily, this could have been a phrase that was used to talk about the peace the emperor provided on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That's how peace worked in the Roman world. You had it if you had the favor of the emperor. If the emperor smiled upon you, if you were a subject, a loyal subject and citizen of Rome, especially if you were in the elite upper classes, you were granted peace. It was peace at the pleasure of Augustus, peace at the pleasure of the emperor. And imagine the audacity of these angels turning up this night and declaring boldly that there is a new sheriff in town and that it is God himself who now determines where peace will fall on earth. This is not a peace at the beck and call of the emperor. This is peace on whom his favor rests. And the whole point of this verse is that God's favor rests on everybody. It is an inclusive peace. Don't get into the debates here about God's favor rests on you, but not on you, and you're chosen and you're not. That's not the point at all. The contrast is between the peace of Christ, the Pax Christi, and the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. One is an exclusive, restrictive peace that says, you've got it only because you love and serve the emperor. The other is God through Christ saying, there is now peace for every single person. Every man, woman, and child, those who the emperor rejects, little children, the slave classes, the servant classes, women, those who are deemed to have lower social status, now the peace of God is being opened up to all those. It is for men and women, it is for Romans and barbarians and Greeks and even those Jews that live over there somewhere in Judea. It's for every single person. This is why you have a moral philosopher a few years later traveling the Roman world writing things like, there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but God is all and is in all, and all are one in Christ Jesus. That's Paul in Galatians 3.28. That's why he can say those words. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. These work close together. Paul's looking back on this and saying that's exactly what happened that night. That peace was declared, and now it's opened up for everybody. This is the inclusive peace that Christ came to bring. And here's the incredible irony of it. That peace came about through Roman crucifixion. That is the sublime irony of the Christian story, the Christmas story. This instrument that was used to enforce the Pax Romana, the cross, it's exactly its purpose. You string people up there in order to demonstrate to them you don't mess with Rome because this is where you're going to end up. That's why they did it. It was a public spectacle. You hang people up like a piece of meat and declare to them, do not disturb the Pax Romana because you're going to find yourself at the wrong end of it if you're not careful. 
Jesus goes to his death on the cross and there he defeats the power of not only that empire but every empire that has ever stood against the purposes and plans of God. And he ushers in peace from being hung up on a Roman cross. It's the most unbelievable irony in the scriptures that Jesus initiates peace that way. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, this is the wisdom of God is just foolishness to people. It's just stupidity. It's just moronic to Greeks. They just think this is crazy, that peace could come through a Roman cross. That's exactly how it came. That's the subversion of the kingdom that just overthrows power structures on their heads, throws upside down everything that we take for granted, the empires, the kingdoms of our world, and declares that there is now peace for every single person. And it is the peace, first and foremost, of being reconciled to the God who created you. This is the good news, isn't it? This is the gospel that you and I now, the dividing wall of sin is down. God has shattered it through Christ on the cross. The relationship between you and the creator God that used to be characterized by enmity and distance and separation has now been reconciled through Christ on the cross. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the message, isn't it, that we should be proclaiming at Christmas time, remembering at Christmas time, acknowledging before our friends, co-workers, sports team members, and neighborhood people at Christmas time that this is the good news, this is the peace, that you can now find that peace with God through Christ, that you can come back into that relationship. And for any of you this morning that don't know it, any of you this morning that have not yet found that peace with God and you're sitting here this morning and your life is not yet reconciled to the God who made you, I want to tell you today's the day. Don't even leave this building before doing that. Don't even leave this building this Christmas time. Bring your life to the manger. Bring your life to the cross and find that peace that was purchased for you at the cross. It is yours. doesn't matter where you've been. doesn't matter how bad it's been. doesn't matter how deep the hole you're sitting at the bottom of this morning. That peace is yours and all it takes is for you to return to God. Bring your life to Him. Lay it down and allow him to renew you from the inside out. That's the gospel. Far better than any gospel Caesar could bring. This is the gospel of Christ, the peace of Christ. And here's the final piece in this whole picture. Uh, notice the nature of this peace in verse 14. It is a peace on the earth. Literally, peace upon the earth. That's the, that's the idea. It's not just a peace in your heart. And my heart, as many Christians often define it, this warm, fuzzy feeling, it's a peace. You know, we talk about, I've got a real peace about this, and I'm feeling at peace. And those feelings are good and positive, but that's not really the essence of the peace these angels came to proclaim. It is a peace upon the earth. And I wonder if you can hear in these words an echo of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus prayed, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here are the angels announcing glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth. I think the Lord's prayer is already being answered here before Jesus has even prayed it. God's kingdom is coming to earth. The kingdom is breaking forward. God's future is rushing into the present. This peace is taking shape. And now for those of us that have experienced this peace, this reconciliation with God, we become the ambassadors of that peace in the world. We become God's agents, his conduits of peace to others. And we do it through proclaiming the good news that people are now invited into relationship with God. And we do it through demonstrating peace, through bringing peace to earth and looking out for those that may not experience much peace at all, particularly this time of year. When you think about the way empires work, empires like the Roman Empire, they always create a class of outsiders. They always create an outgroup. That's the way empire has to work to sustain itself. It consolidates power, 
It gives to some and not to others. It centralizes resources. And there are always, in every empire, a class of people who don't have the power, a class of people who don't have the resources. There are the haves and the have-nots. And there are some that are simply spat out by the empire and they end up occupying the lowest rungs of society. And so it is with the empires in our day. Empires of consumerism and greed and materialism. These empires create an outgroup. And here's one very practical way that we can start thinking along these lines at Christmas time. As you are walking the shopping malls, and nobody's saying don't walk the shopping malls, don't buy gifts, that's all fine. But as you walk the malls, ask yourself, who is not here? Who are those who aren't here? Who aren't in these shops, who aren't in these malls, who aren't in this experience? It's those without the money. It's those who have just been laid off. It's those without the means. It's those who can't walk around with the bags full of gifts that they would dearly like to walk around with because they simply can't afford it. Who is the outgroup in that experience? As you celebrate Christmas with family and friends, as so we should, ask yourself, who's not here? Who doesn't have this? Who do I know that doesn't have the privilege of tasting this kind of community? It's the elderly. It's those people on your street that just don't have anyone to spend Christmas with. It's those whose family are on the other side of the world. It's those who have lost someone in their immediate family for whom Christmas is the most dreaded time of year. While you and I are celebrating, there's a lot of people that absolutely dread December coming around. Who is it that are created as an outgroup by the way we celebrate Christmas? As you watch the ads that celebrate the social side of Christmas and being together with people and friends and family, don't neglect that, of course, but ask yourself, who doesn't have this? Who can't get in on this? And what can we do in some small way to go and reach and encourage and extend peace on earth to those people? Because they're out there. They're in your streets. They're parents of other kids at your kid's school. They're out there. You know them. They're in your relational sphere of orbit. Maybe they're at your work. Maybe they're even in your extended family. Is there a way? Can you send a Christmas card to someone you might not normally send one to? Can you give someone a call and have a coffee with them over the next couple of weeks because you know they're probably desperately lonely? Could you visit someone, even on Christmas Day, that you know is going to have no other social company that day? Could you even go as far as having someone round your Christmas table that might otherwise have a pretty lonely and a, and a pretty impoverished Christmas? Can you make an effort to do something like that, to extend the Pax Christi? That's what that's about. That's how we subvert the empire. It's not simply by accommodating ourselves to this culture of rampant consumerism and greed, but by looking out for those whom the empire has rejected those who are on the outside, and being Jesus' hands and feet and going to them and ministering to them and encouraging them at Christmas time. It means that we listen again to that story that the angels told that night of an empire that was under threat, of a kingdom that had come not just to leave the world alone and pursue a little holy huddle, but to really confront the empires and kingdoms of its own day. And we live that out, not through violence and not through aggression, but by embodying an alternative way of living, an alternative way of being, an alternative way of being human in the world at Christmas time. That's the Pax Christi. That's the peace of Christ. That is the Christmas story. Shall we pray? Jesus, we are so grateful that you have not abandoned us or left us without hope, but you've come down to this earth. And not just to rescue us from this world, but to save us within it. 
and to enable us to be the agents of renewal and restoration and recreation, even within the shell of this old world. Father, we want to look for ways to do that, and we're overwhelmed by the task, but we just commit ourselves to looking for small things, small ways, baby steps, starting points this Christmas. We lift our eyes, Lord, above our own busyness, our own priorities, our own to-do list before Christmas rolls around, and we just take up this challenge of embodying the story and looking out for those that are on the other side of the empire, that don't experience the peace of Christ, that perhaps don't experience the presence and the comfort of family. Father, just embody us, enable us, empower us to be able to go to them, to reach out to them, to do something, to serve someone this Christmas. They would embody and live out the story again in our own day. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us this peace. Well, we thank you that you've come and you've enabled us to come back into relationship with you. That is the starting point of all of this, that you've just thrown down and knocked down that dividing wall of sin and you've built us again close to you. You've built that relationship strong and we thank you for that. We give you such grateful praise and we pray that you would use us this Christmas to bring glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name.